This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. This is episode number 141, and today is February the 9th of 2023. And the snow is melting as we speak here where I live in West Michigan. We're likely not done with snow for this year, unfortunately, but we're starting to see the light at the end of the winter tunnel. That is welcome news, especially for my vitamin D levels. But these warmer temps don't just signal the impending arrival of the spring season. There's another season getting ready to start up, one that is all too familiar to those of us in animal welfare, right? Say it with me. Here we go. Kitten season. The warmer weather, longer days, more widely available food sources all help unaltered female cats know that it's time to go into heat and get busy. And that means it's busy at shelters and rescues too. We call it a kitten season, but cats can and do give birth year-round. Just ask folks in Florida or California how long their kitten season is. But for much of the country, it's a fairly predictable period where the number of kittens in need increases in early spring until temps cool off in the fall. Kittens are a very vulnerable shelter population. From newborn to about four weeks old, they require intensive care, resources both financial and time that a lot of places simply don't have which means many kittens simply won't stand a chance. But you know all of these things, don't you? The question you may have, though, especially if you work somewhere that takes in kittens, your question is going to be, what do we do with all of them? This week, we spoke with Andy Bingham, the executive director of one of our Best Friends Network partners. They're called the Esther Neonatal Kitten Alliance. They're down in Asheville, North Carolina, to learn more about them, their work, and how they found success saving the tiniest lives. And we've got more information about Andy's organization on our website, along with tons of great kitten-related resources, including our neonatal kitten toolkit that will help guide you into this upcoming kitten season. Check it out at bestfriends.org slash podcast, or follow the link in the show notes on your podcast player. Well, let's start at the beginning, Andy. What is the Esther Neonatal Kitten Alliance, and how did it come to be? So we started in 2019, and I started the organization because I had worked in animal welfare for many years and just saw over and over, no matter how well-funded an organization was that I was working for, no matter how much they had for resources, over and over, I was seeing that every time orphan newborn kittens came through the door, it was total chaos. And um, it was really hard to get them placed into knowledgeable foster homes, really hard to keep them alive. And the fosters were getting burnt out very quickly. So when I had an opportunity to start my own organization, you know, I started really thinking about how do we make sure that fosters are really prepared for what it takes to take care of such a challenging animal. And now we take in over 500 animals a year and about 70% of the animals we take in are either under a week old or severely injured or ill when they arrive. So in addition to neonates, we also take in some older kittens who, you know, are severely sick or injured. What about you? What's your background? So I worked for a few rescues, but I also have a background as a writer. I was a, I wrote a lot of cat articles for some publications and websites, but when I lived in New York, I worked at a cat rescue and up in New York, the problem with orphan newborns is not like it is down here. You know, up there, I think I bottle fed just 
a handful of kittens. They were kind of rare. Um, and that's because, of course, um, it's so much colder up north. So kittens or cats are just not roaming outdoors as much. There's also a different culture around spaying and neutering. So they're just not really the, the problem up north as we have down here. And then when I moved down here, I mean, it was just uh, the wave of uh, kittens coming from outside was just extraordinary. So I started bottle feeding when I got down here because I had the ability to and just felt like, you know, if I could, I should. So started bottle feeding and started bottle feeding really, you know, 365 days a year seemed like. And, you know, the more I did it, of course, the more skills I learned. And um, yeah, just kind of spun into a career. Yeah. Funny how that happens, isn't it? (laughs) So help me understand what it's like down in North Carolina. We've talked about your state a little bit on the podcast. You know, the Best Friends National Conference was there last year. I know things have been tough. Is it getting better? And, you know, do you know, do you have any sense, like, how much of the struggle in North Carolina is related to kittens? So it's a little hard for me to tell how much of the problem is kitten-related just because all we deal with is primarily kittens. So I might my, my, my view on that may be a little skewed. What I do know is we partner with um, a few dozen rescues and municipal shelters throughout North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina, Virginia, but primarily within the Western North Carolina region. You know, at peak season in July, August, I'm sometimes getting 30 calls a day about kittens. About 60% of the animals we take in come from those organizations we partner with. And right now about 40% comes directly from the community, but it's constant. And of course, our resources are, are not unlimited. So we can't say yes to all of them, but we try to take in the top most vulnerable ones that we can. But the problem to me feels very, very, very large. The amount of calls we're getting is extraordinary. So I do feel like it still is a problem. And I feel like, you know, when COVID hit a few years ago, our high volume clinic basically shut down for almost the whole year. It is back running now, but still at a a limited capacity. And I feel like last year, we finally saw the real impact of that. And um, it was just a absolutely massive amount of animals. There have been a few more spay-neuter resources added um, over the past six months or so. So hopefully going into this season, it'll be, we'll be in better shape, but the lack of spay-neuter resources um, has been, it's been a lot. So you said 60, 40, 60% of the kittens you take in are from partner organizations, 40% from the public. That's 60%. Let's talk about that. What is the makeup? Are you primarily partnering with municipal shelters? So they are rescues and municipal shelters. Some of the rescues are foster-based. Basically, these are just organizations who don't have the resources to take care of kittens who are not weaned. So, you know, if they call us and we have room, we'll take them in. Um, But we also provide a lot of training. So every month we have an in-person class that they can send their fosters to, send their staff to us. And we also have an online webinar. Our goal is to be helping them in whatever way we can by taking animals from them when they don't have the resources to take care of them, but also trying to help them build some sort of sustainable program. So hopefully in, you know, three, five, 10 years, they will be in a much better place to be able to help this population on their own. We tend to take in just, you know, we get calls a lot of uh, shelters calling and saying, oh, we just got in the litter of five three-day-old kittens. And, you know, three-day-old kittens are really hard for 
somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing to keep alive. Those are hard to keep alive, even when you are very skilled in what you're doing. So for them being able to reach out to us and, you know, have us take those kittens from them, you know, I do believe that we've done a lot of work to help them not have to possibly euthanize those kittens or, you know, send those kittens to somebody who doesn't know how to take care of them and is possibly going to aspirate them or something like that. So I do think that we are helping a lot of those rescues save a lot more that they wouldn't otherwise. And you're in Asheville, North Carolina. Correct. So the western part of the state in the mountains and Asheville, I think it's fair to say, at least Asheville proper, probably on the whole more affluent than some other areas of the state. I was looking at your annual reports uh, on your website to prep for this, and I saw some of the counties listed that you work with. I'm sorry to say, I just don't know North Carolina well enough to know them, but I'm guessing that some, if not all, are places that are very under-resourced. Again, big guess, generalization, but they probably don't have much in the way of anything close to what they need to help neonatal kittens. Yeah, so um, most of the, especially the municipal shelters we work with, just really don't have much for resources at all. You know, they kind of have a hard time with their general population of adult healthy animals. And, you know, for them with neonates, you know, in order to really give them the chance that they need, you know, you really do need some special equipment. They need a special food. So it's even with these, with these rescues, you know, they sometimes just don't even have access to kitten formula, you know, like, even if they go to Walmart, the Walmart won't have it. And like, they don't have a Petco nearby or a PetSmart nearby, you know, unless they order online, which is going to take a few days to get to them. You know, they just don't have access. They don't, ha- they can't find a bottle. They just like really simple stuff like that. So when you just have no access to, to just what we consider to be very basic things that a neonate needs to live, it just becomes really, really hard. But beyond those basic things, um, it's also, um, you know, they don't have the foster base. So they just, they haven't found the people in their communities and those people might exist and they just haven't been able to to do the footwork to find them. But they so far um, feel as if they don't have the foster base to support that. So they like, they haven't found somebody who's willing to wake up every two or three hours to feed a kitten and, you know, doesn't work a job where they can't bring kittens with them to work or, you know, those people are tricky to find. And especially if you don't have the capacity to give them the training they need and the support they need while they're fostering those really extra vulnerable kittens, it becomes even harder. So if you don't know yourself really how to bottle feed a kitten, you of course can't really effectively train somebody else to do it. So you know, it's, it's, it makes it even harder to find those fosters because if they don't come to you with pre-existing knowledge, how do they get that knowledge? So I think less and less so today, you know, we're finding that folks aren't receptive to partnerships. Uh, again, generalization, but on the whole, as a movement, it seems like organizations are more willing than ever to ask for help, to receive help. What has your experience been? You know, how are you forging those relationships, especially if folks maybe aren't as willing to open the door and say, hey, Andy, Esther Neonatal Kitten Alliance, come help us. So we have actually not had much pushback. I think that you know, a lot of these organizations are touching base with us. They're making the initial contact. We're not necessarily reaching out to them just because we do have so many kittens coming in that, you know, a lot of the newer ones are just people reaching out to us. I think that a lot of these organizations have been very desperate for a long time to 
find some sort of help. I think that it really helps that these organizations can see that when we talk about these animals, when we talk about our partnerships, when we, you know, if they're watching our social media, there's never going to be a time where on our social media, we're like, oh, we got this animal from this shelter in some rural county. And it came to us emaciated and covered in fleas, because obviously they weren't caring for it. And like, we're never going to talk about our partners in a way that makes them feel like they're not doing enough. Because if an animal comes to us in um, less than desirable shape, it's, it's really just because that shelter just did not have the resources to provide proper care for whatever reason. And we're not going to do anything that makes them be like, oh, well, I'm not going to reach out to them next time because they're just going to trash us on Facebook or whatever. So I think that just being able to have very respectful relationships, you know, having them be able to look at our social media and see how we talk about our partners and, you know, even to, to know that we sometimes tag our partners and thank them for, you know, making sure that these animals got to us safely or whatever. It's been good. The challenge that we've had really has been being able to transport the animals to us. So some of these organizations reaching out to us are two, three hours away, sometimes up to five hours away, you know, and you're talking about kittens who are, you know, a week old. These are kittens that like, they need to get to us ASAP. The longer you wait, the worse they're going to shape they're going to be in. You know, we don't want to like get kittens here and have them be like actively crashing. So one thing we're looking to kind of figure out this year is, you know, can we have some sort of like transport team, like in the wings waiting, who can just leave in a moment's notice and go grab these kittens because it's really hard for a lot of these under-resourced shelters to just snap their fingers and have somebody willing to drive five hours to Asheville or even, even meeting us halfway can be really challenging. So that has been one huge challenge that we've had just trying to like figure out how we can make sure that there's always somebody able to, to do that drive. And, you know, because the other challenge is if a rescue or a municipal shelter reaches out to us for help and we can't figure out how to get those animals here and it becomes kind of a headache, they're less likely to reach out to us the next time. Well, so now let's talk about the public. I want to ask you about foster parents specifically. I always love asking about recruiting and retaining neonatal foster parents because, you know, let's be real, if if we were going to rank... Uh, you know, by ease, foster assignments, I would say a bottle baby or three, uh, maybe not the easiest for sure. And of course, there's the element of loss to this also, you know, as good as we've gotten in terms of understanding how to care for neonatal kittens, despite best efforts, sometimes they just don't make it. So what have you found to be successful, Andy, in recruiting foster parents, but also maybe more importantly, keeping them, particularly when things aren't working out? Mm So I think that the three, the three keys to keeping the fosters who come to you are talking very frankly, and this is a part of recruiting too, is talking very frankly about the problem and how fosters are the solution. So we talk very frankly about, you know, these kittens would not live if they don't have somebody taking care of them every two, three hours. It's just like, that is 100% the thing that's going to help give these kittens a chance. And then also talking very frankly about the loss. Obviously, neonates have a higher mortality rate than probably any other animal that enters shelters. And, you know, talking frankly about that's the reason why they're born in litters of like, you know, four, six, eight kittens is because nature expects 
half of them die. And then just helping our fosters truly understand that, you know, even if the kitten doesn't make it, they were given a chance that they wouldn't have had, had they stayed outside without a mom, with the predators, with the cold, with, you know, whatever. So, you know, it's always worth giving them a shot. And then just also talking to fosters about even when they do pass away, it is really, really big to know that even if a kitten passed away, they were warm, they had a full belly, they knew love, um, they got stroked and loved. And um, so that even when they pass away, it is a more comfortable passing. When it comes to retaining, we find that making sure our fosters know that we are really committed to providing a lot of training and education. So once a month, we have a foster meeting where fosters are invited to come to our nursery. We also stream them through our foster Facebook group for people who can't come. The first part of those meetings are always some sort of quick training. So we talk about compassion fatigue, we talk about sanitizing, we talk about tube feeding, you know, whatever kind of skills we can give our fosters. And then the last part of that meeting is just, you know, giving them a chance to ask questions or talk about an experience they had. And also just gives them a chance to meet other fosters, build those relationships so that, you know, if they're feeding a kitten and that kitten graduates on to another foster, they feel good that that person knows what they're doing. They know that person. And it also gives them a chance to network with other fosters. If they're struggling with something, they can reach out to another foster and talk about it. We also have foster mentors, which are kind of the same thing, but these are people that we have really deemed to be people that we know are very knowledgeable, maybe knowledgeable uh, for very specific things. And we try to pair up new fosters with these mentors. And that has worked really well, as long as you're very clear with the mentor about boundaries. Like obviously the mentor cannot be recommending a medication or something like that. But, you know, if it comes to, um, you know, my kitten hasn't pooped in three days, when is it a problem? And then the mentor can say, oh, well, is the belly hard? Are they straining and not producing? Are they still eating? And the mentor can help kind of walk through and help them figure out whether it's a problem or whether it's something they can kind of wait and see on. So that has been really helpful for kind of taking some stuff off the shoulders of my team. It has also really helped to let our fosters know that if they take in a three-day-old kitten, they don't have to hang on that kitten until they're adoptable. If they want to take that kitten for a week, or if they want to, you know, just keep that kitten until they're weaning. Being able to be flexible about timing is really important because not everybody is like me and is okay with just bottle feeding 24-7 for the rest of my life. Um, I get that a normal human does need full nights of sleep and goes on vacation sometimes or just needs a few days to not have kittens around. So letting people understand that, you know, this isn't like a necessarily a full-time commitment. If you can just do a few days or a week or something, then that's okay too. And then also um, just making sure that there's resources in place for compassion fatigue. And I think with neonates, compassion fatigue is, you know, can be more common because of the loss factor. And I think when you combine the higher mortality rate with um, a lack of sleep, it can really spiral pretty quickly. And I think a lot of people um, don't really recognize it in themselves. So our staff is kind of trained to pay attention to that with our fosters and 
even if the foster doesn't see it, sometimes we do have conversations with our fosters just to say like, Hey, like, why don't you take a few days off and we'll talk about more fosters next week or something and um, not get into a place where we're encouraging people to kind of run themselves into the ground. Tell me again, you founded the organization in 2019. So 2019, then 2020, something happened in case we've all forgotten. Of course, I'm talking about the pandemic. So I'm not sure you really could have picked a crazier time to start a new nonprofit. You've obviously done well through it, but what was that like? I mean, what was that time like when that started to set in? Were you just thinking like, why me? Yeah. So I literally started the organization like five months before COVID. And I also, a month that COVID hit our region, I snapped my ankle in half and had to have like a basically like reconstructive surgery on my ankle. So it was a pretty challenging first year or so, you know, luckily I came from, you know, I've worked in rescue for a long time and I've worked in many aspects of rescue. So I have a pretty well-rounded rescue resume. I also have experience with fundraising and marketing and grant writing and social media and stuff like that. So I was luckily pretty on top of keeping it together. I think if I didn't have the history that I have, um, we wouldn't have survived. I mean, it was pretty crazy. Interested in the growth as well, because again, just looking at the financials uh, of your organization, the last few years, you know, it looks like you've been able to grow in a time where we might not think that it could happen like that, a brand new organization. How are you managing the growth and also going forward from here? You know, what's the strategic plan look like two, three, five years from now? You mentioned transport issues, but, you know, if we think about how to solve the neonatal kitten care crisis, like nationally, it definitely a capacity resource issue, right? So what is the solution? Could we build enough neonatal kitten nurseries across the country and staff them? I guess so. If all of us pulled every dollar, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what that would cost. I mean, astronomically expensive. So maybe not the best use of resources. We know we can solve some of this, a lot of this outside of facilities, right? So just curious how your organization, you know, you're solely focused on these little guys. This is what you all do. How are you planning for the future? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I definitely have a pretty intensive five-year plan. And I think that in order to have the growth that we have, like, that's really important to be able to like, you know, say, okay, where do I want to be in five years? What are like all the million stepping stones in order to get us there? And, you know, my five-year vision's pretty big. And um, I think we're on our way. We were able to actually purchase our property during COVID because we were doing well enough. So we actually just purchased our facility in November. We had been leasing it for two years before that. This year, our focus is education, a lot more education for our fosters. And that includes once a month, we're doing a in-person bottle baby class for anybody in the community and our fosters who want to come to it. We're doing those monthly meetings for our fosters that each one will have a different topic. And then we're doing a live webinar once a month for most months of the year. I think it starts next month. I really believe that it would definitely be great if every community had a kitten nursery. I think that you know, if every community had a nursery that had incubators and oxygen and nebulizers and can tube feed like that, I think would solve a lot of the problem um, in, in, you know, hand in hand with like really aggressive spay-neuter programs, which is, I think, like the real missing link that we don't have the capacity to help with right now. But I think that so many of the communities that we work with, they're like light years away from being able to have their community support a kitten nursery. But, you know, if we can get 25, 30 people from each community to attend a webinar 
and learn about it. You know, even if those people don't ever bottle feed a kitten themselves, maybe their neighbor will find a kitten or their brother will find a kitten. And that person will say, oh, I attended this webinar, like either here's where I found it, go watch it. Or, you know, here's the things I learned, let me help you. And then, you know, these kittens have a much better chance of survival, the more people who are educated to take care of them. So that's definitely what we're focusing on this year is just education, 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 train as many people as we can. But the webinars, historically, people from all over the country and even all over the world watch those live webinars. So that's been really cool to see people, you know, tuning in from Portugal or something to watch the webinars has been really cool. And just knowing that people all over are getting this really critical information that, you know, people really need to know the minute they find kittens. Will there be people listening to this who need help with kittens? They want to know if you're looking for more partners currently, Andy. Just want to make sure we set the expectation there in terms of what you're able to offer folks. You know, are you looking for partners currently? We are. Um, so because of the transportation challenges, we're definitely able to work with partners in North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, Virginia, South Carolina. Outside of that, outside of maybe a special circumstance, like, you know, we did take some kittens from the Florida floods, kind of stuff like that. Um, outside of a special circumstance, it gets really complicated for getting animals to us. But I'm always willing to do a live webinar for a shelter if they have staff and volunteers and fosters who want to jump onto a webinar. Um, I'm happy to talk to a shelter about, you know, their specific concerns and questions. And, you know, we can tailor a training specific to what they need to know. I would love to talk to anybody about ways that we can help save kittens. So yeah, uh, anybody should feel free to email me to chat about, you know, what they may need to know. A reminder that we have a website. It's always got loads of helpful stuff for you and your life-saving work, including contact information for Andy at the Esther Neonatal Kitten Alliance. Each episode has its own page with related resources. There's a link in the show notes for this episode that can be accessed on your podcast player of choice, or you can go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. Again, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click the link for episode 141. Thank you to Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.